0: Welcome. This is Professor Corey Olson, and this is the first installment in my eight-part lecture series on J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. This lecture is titled Took and Baggins, and it will deal with Chapter 1 of The Hobbit, An Unexpected Party. Ever since Peter Jackson's film trilogy was completed, I've been hearing rumors of plans for a movie version of The Hobbit. Now, from the beginning, I have thought this was a mistake. I'm not saying I think it's impossible to do a good film version of The Hobbit. I just think it's a big mistake to go backwards. It seems to me that an audience familiar with the epic grandeur of Peter Jackson's trilogy is going to bring expectations to a new Tolkien movie that's going to set a Hobbit film up for one of two very likely failures. Either the movie's going to try to tell Bilbo's story in the mode and register of the Lord of the Rings and therefore strip the story of the lightheartedness and whimsicality that makes it so delightful, or it's going to try to be true to the tone and spirit of the book and will therefore seem kind of silly and childish to an audience hoping for a successor to Peter Jackson's films. Consider The Ring, for instance. Peter Jackson's films go so far out of their way to make The Ring a great and powerful character in its own right that it's hard to see how it could be demoted simply to being Bilbo's magic and visibility ring, which is what it is all the way through The Hobbit. I mean, can you imagine Bilbo fighting the spiders in Mirkwood, or living for days and weeks in the halls of the Elf King, surrounded by that trippy, psychedelic, distorted reality with the spooky voiceovers and heavy breathing that Peter Jackson always associates with wearing the ring? I mean, it just wouldn't work. But I'm getting ahead of myself. My main point is that the styles and atmospheres of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings are very different, and it's hard to think about them out of their natural order. The Hobbit came first, and it was written as a children's story. The Lord of the Rings was meant to be a sequel to The Hobbit, but in the long process of its writing, the story ended up growing up. In Letter 34, Tolkien warns his publisher that the sequel to The Hobbit isn't shaping up to be what he expected it to be. He says it is forgetting children, and is becoming more terrifying than The Hobbit. It may prove quite unsuitable. He attributes this, at least in part, to the fact that the primary intended audience for his stories, his own kids, had themselves in the meantime grown up. This shift in tone, style, and focus, the way Bilbo's little story matures into the great tale of Frodo, Sam, and Aragorn, is the main reason I chose to start these lectures with a series on The Hobbit instead of going straight to The Fellowship of the Ring, in order to make sure that I really do justice to both works. Since Tolkien identifies its relationship with children as one of the main things that made The Hobbit different from The Lord of the Rings, I want to start with a closer examination of this relationship as he sets it up in Chapter 1. I want to look at the means by which Tolkien sets out to appeal to children in his style and his narrative. Seeing this will show us the kinds of choices that Tolkien is making as he is setting up his secondary world. One of the queerest ways we can see Tolkien focusing on children in chapter 1 is through his word choice. Tolkien is very careful with his word choice throughout his writings. Remember that he was a philologist, a scholar of language, so he tended to think not just about what words mean and how they sound, but about their history and their derivations. For instance, in The Lord of the Rings, whenever Tolkien elevates his style at a dramatic moment in the plot, he tries never to use any words that enter the English language after the year 1500. I mentioned in my intro lecture Tolkien's love for old things. This is only one small example. In The Hobbit, though, targeting an audience of children, Tolkien not only uses newfangled modern words, but he mixes those with downright silly words, some of which he makes up himself. We can see this in the first paragraph, when he refers to nasty holes filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, or in his description on page 10 of Bilbo's being altogether bewildered and bewothered, or in Bilbo's delightful cry of frustration in the kitchen, Confusticate and be-bother those dwarves! Through his linguistic playfulness, Tolkien creates a comical and light-hearted atmosphere from the beginning. In his desire to create this comical atmosphere, Tolkien plays fast and loose not only with language, but even with the internal consistency of his own narrative. In my intro lecture, I explain Tolkien's thoughts about willing suspension of disbelief. Tolkien believed that a successful story, or sub-creation as he calls it, invites secondary belief, an investment in the world of the story by the reader. The ways in which the laws of that secondary world differ from those of our primary world do not hamper secondary belief so long as they are consistent and make sense within the framework that the story creates. If the art of the storyteller is good enough, we will be led to accept things like magic or dragons as perfectly plausible within the bounds of that secondary world. But there is a moment in Chapter 1 of The Hobbit that demands simple, old-fashioned suspension of disbelief. It isn't the dragon or the wizard that does it, it's the dwarves' musical instruments. I know this might sound like nitpicking, I recognize that it's a small point, but I think it's a really interesting and suggestive point, because it's a very unusual kind of moment in a Tolkien narrative. He's usually very careful to make sure his narrative is internally consistent, that it contains no jarring implausibilities that might jolt his readers out of their secondary belief. The musical instruments of the dwarves, however, are wildly implausible, even according to the internal laws of Tolkien's subcreated world. I mean, okay, it is perhaps possible for us to believe that Thorin, being an enormously important dwarf, of great nobility and sophisticated tastes, even though living under reduced circumstances, might be carrying around with him a beautiful golden harp, wrapped in a green cloth. It is also conceivable though certainly a little odd, that Dory, Nori, and Ori would carry around flutes somewhere inside their coats. But the idea that Feely and Keeley carry little fiddles in their bags is seriously unlikely, and Bomber's drum is even more so. Bifur and Bofur running out to fetch clarinets that they had left among the walking sticks begins to sound genuinely ridiculous. We're to picture these two dwarves hiking across the shire to Bilbo's Hole with a walking stick in one hand and a clarinet in the other? Most ludicrous by far, however, are Balin and Dwallin. Tolkien asks us to believe that they travel around the countryside carrying vials as big as themselves. I mean, remember, there's no queer evidence that the dwarves even had ponies before they set off with Bilbo. And even if they did, were to imagine Balin and Dwalin trekking all the way from the Blue Mountains, through forests and over rivers, with cello strapped to their baggage? As Sam Gamgee's old gaffer would say, It takes a lot of believing! This lapse of believability, however, does not really compromise Tolkien's secondary world. I've never met anybody turned off from The Hobbit by the impracticality of this little dwarven chamber ensemble. Even if it doesn't make practical sense, it does make a different kind of sense. It's perfectly fitting with the tone and spirit of the story so far. It's funny. It's another moment of silliness that contributes to the light-hearted tone that Tolkien has so carefully established. Bjorn will later call Thorin and his twelve companions a fine comic troupe. And that is clearly how Tolkien has prompted us to receive them at the beginning of the story. As an aside, I'd like to mention that I do think that the introduction of the instruments has another important function besides comedy. I'll come back to this in a little while, but poetry and song are very important in The Hobbit and in Tolkien's works in general. The music that the dwarves make with their instruments is a critical moment in the first chapter, and the very impracticality of their appearance draws more attention to the scene. I'll talk about this more later, though. One of the interesting things about Chapter 1 is that although Tolkien firmly establishes a comical and whimsical tone, the actual story he's telling is quite serious, even at times gruesome. The dwarves might be a comic troupe, but their journey is deadly serious. They're seeking to regain their wealth and the kingdom out of which they were driven to wander homeless and destitute in the wild so many years before. They're setting out on an all but hopeless quest to take vengeance on the monstrous and enormously powerful dragon who massacred their families and friends. Much later, after finishing the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien puts the quest of Thorin and the dwarves into the larger context of the War of the Ring, and makes it sound a very solemn and important thing indeed. Think what might have been, says Gandalf in Appendix A on page 1053, imagining what could have happened if Smaug had still been in the Lonely Mountain as an ally to Sauron. Dragon fire and savage swords in Ariador, night in Rivendell. There might be no queen in Gondor. We might now hope to return from the victory here, only to ruin and ash. In chapter one of The Hobbit, however, the gravity of the story's plot is very persistently coupled with the lightheartedness of style and tone that I have already pointed to. Tolkien uses comical turns of phrase that make light of moments that might otherwise just be unsettling or even alarming. As Bilbo's beloved house is being invaded by uninvited dwarves, and his life is quickly being turned upside down, Tolkien is careful to keep the mood light by remarking that this was the most awkward Wednesday he ever remembered. Even the massacre of the dwarves of the Lonely Mountain is played for chuckles at one point, when Gandalf observed that Smaug would be too big and fat to fit through the narrow secret door in the mountain, after devouring so many of the dwarves and men of Dale. Most conspicuous of all is how Tolkien tones down the tragedy of the disappearance and death under horrifying circumstances of Thorin's father by having Gandalf say on page 24, Thrain your father went away on the 21st of April, a hundred years ago last Thursday. When dealing with solemn or even frightening things, Tolkien still strives to keep The Hobbit, at least at the start of its action, firmly within the realm of comedy. This choice reflects Tolkien's attitude towards children and children's stories. On the one hand, he is sensitive to their fears, and he doesn't want to simply terrify his young audience. On the other hand, he also has no desire to shield them from some quite horrifying things. In his essay on fairy stories, Tolkien argues that children's stories should never be simply rose-tinted, empty of all that is dark or frightening. He argued for the educational value of good stories that dealt with these things, teaching children about right and wrong. Children are meant to grow up, he explains, and not to become Peter Pan's not to lose innocence and wonder, but to proceed on the appointed journey. He insists that, on callow, lumpish, and selfish youth, peril, sorrow, and the shadow of death can bestow dignity, and even, sometimes, wisdom. Throughout this balancing act between comedy and seriousness, Tolkien is also introducing his readers to the fantasy world he has created. He does this quite gently, again showing a thoughtful sensitivity to the children in the audience. When listing the splendors of the dwarf kingdom before Smaug, Tolkien mentions the gold and the jewels of the dwarves, but he primarily illustrates the skill of their craftsmanship by describing the most marvelous and magical toys, the like of which is not to be found in the world nowadays. And the capstone on his account of the kingdom's prosperity is the fact that the toy market of Dale was the wonder of the north. In fact, by following this statement immediately, by saying undoubtedly that was what brought the dragon, Tolkien almost suggests that Smaug's primary interest in the region was their toys. In this way, Tolkien brings the greed and desire of dragons within the scope of a child's experience. It remains unquestionably marvelous and fantastical, yet it's not merely alien. He gives kids a way of latching onto to it, imaginatively. Also, of course, he manages to touch the treasure-lust of dragons with that hint of frivolity that manages to blunt the edges of its terror. The reader's first encounter with Gandalf is also handled in a remarkably child-friendly way. Bilbo's first recollection of Gandalf on page 7 is his giving the old took a pair of magic diamond studs that fastened themselves and never came off till ordered. On the one hand, this is genuinely marvelous, a trick that has the splendor not only of magic but of the diamonds as well. This was certainly a rare and precious gift from Gandalf to his friend. However, as our first introduction to Gandalf's wizardry, it's a rather odd and homey piece of work. Gandalf, of course, is the great wizard who will eventually be revealed as the captain and champion of all the forces of good in Middle-earth. The diamond studs are kind of impressive, but they're certainly a rather domestic piece of magic. What it does, though, is bring the world of magic and wizardry right into children's own daily routines, inviting them to imagine how splendid it would be to have buttons that were not only made of diamonds, but would instantly fasten themselves. My own son, who hates to get dressed in the morning, would love this. Even Gandalf's more spectacular wizardry, his fireworks, which become almost his trademark, serves as a kind of benchmark that a child can easily understand. Even non-magical fireworks are enough to inspire awe and wonder in a child, and Tolkien invokes this experience as a launching-off point for his reader's imagination. Gandalf's magical and altogether remarkable fireworks introduce children to a world of marvels and give them a glimpse of how much higher the ceiling for wonder is in this amazing new world. Tolkien makes his fantasy world imaginatively approachable for his young audience by bringing it into contact with our world while still emphasizing how magical and marvelous it is. Now, the really fascinating thing about Chapter 1 is the similarity between Tolkien's artistic focus and the focus of his story itself. As I've been explaining, he is introducing his child audience to his fantastical secondary world of hobbits, dwarves, dragons, and wizards. He is doing this in a way that makes it delightful and amusing for them, cajoling them into leaving their safe, mundane world behind and investing their imaginations in a world that contains fantastical horrors as well as marvels. At the same time, Tolkien makes this transition the subject of the story itself. Bilbo Baggins points the way for the readers by going through a very similar process, moving from the mundane to the marvelous. In this sense, The Hobbit is very nearly a book which teaches its own readers how to enjoy it. The story begins with hobbits and their world, and we are immediately assured that it's a very mundane sort of world. Hobbits may have some few peculiarities, such as their small size, their furry, shoeless feet, and their tradition of living in holes in the ground, but Tolkien immediately assures us that they are fundamentally non-marvelous. He says on page 4 that there is little or no magic about them. They love food, and they love to laugh. They love ease and comfort. Tolkien tells us in the very first paragraph that a hobbit hole means comfort by definition. Bilbo's Hole has paneled walls and floors tiled and carpeted. Its comforts are very civilized comforts, in fact. The Bagginses are at the center of this comfortable mundane world. They are considered highly respectable. The source of their respectability is their absolute antithesis to anything adventurous. They are completely predictable. Bagginses never did anything unexpected. You could tell what a Baggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. This is the world that Tolkien gives us at the start of the narrative, which begins in the quiet of the world when there was less noise and more green. In the middle of this quiet world sits Bilbo, lounging outside the door of his luxurious hobbit hole, smoking leisurely and telling Gandalf, There's no hurry, we have all the day before us. Bilbo is the soul of hobbitly respectability and predictability, the picture of comfort and ease. There is, of course, another side to hobbits, and even to Bilbo himself the Took side. Bilbo's mom is called famous and remarkable, two things that the predictable Bagginses should never be. Tolkien lends to the Tooks an otherworldly splendor by repeating the rumor that one of the Took ancestors must have taken a fairy wife, that is to say, married an elf. In his early writings, Tolkien often uses the words fairy and elf interchangeably. Although Tolkien tells us that this idea is, of course, absurd, it provides us with a kind of parallel for the unlikely and uneven match between Bilbo's parents, the stolid Bungo Baggins and the fabulous Belladonna Took, whose very names reflect their wide differences in character. There is something not entirely hobbit-like about Tooks, we're told. They sometimes have adventures. This deviance from the traditional sedate hobbit outlook is embodied in the story by Gandalf the Wizard. Gandalf not only uses magic, as I have discussed already, but he is also associated from the beginning, interestingly, with stories. Bilbo's summary of Gandalf's resume includes not only the old Took's magical diamond studs and Gandalf's trademark fireworks, but sandwiched between these items is Bilbo's admirably clear recollection of the wonderful tales that Gandalf used to tell at parties, about dragons and goblins and giants and the rescue of princesses and the unexpected luck of widow's sons. In fact, stories are the very first things that Tolkien associates with Gandalf, telling us immediately upon introducing him that tales and adventures sprouted up all over the place wherever he went. This association has two effects for us as readers. For one, it reminds us that this story too has sprung up around Gandalf, beginning when he walks into it. For another, it might lead us to ask which came first, the adventurous streak in the Took family or their friendship with Gandalf the wizard. We know that Bilbo's great-great-granduncle, Bullroarer Took, was a mighty warrior for a hobbit, but we'll find out in the Lord of the Rings that Gandalf was in business, as Bilbo puts it, long before the time of the Bullroarer. In any case, the adventurous Tooks live in conflict with mainstream hobbit society. They are simply not as respectable as the Bagginses. It's interesting to note, though, that Tolkien does not describe them as complete social outcasts. Though not as respectable, they are famous and they're also undoubtedly richer even than the comfortable Bagginses. The Tooks might be deviant, but they are still a powerful force in Hobbit society. The meeting of Bilbo and Gandalf in the first scene of the story, therefore, shows us a meeting between these two impulses, the quiet, comfortable, and predictable Hobbit life, and the marvelous, dangerous, and disturbing adventures that tend to break out and unsettle that world whenever Gandalf's around. Bilbo summarizes the mainstream Hobbit worldview nicely when he's talking to Gandalf. He observes that he and his neighbors are plain quiet folk who have no use for adventures. Even more revealing is his characterization of adventures as nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things that make you late for dinner. There can surely be no clearer statement of Baggins' values. They are all for neat, undisturbed, and comfortable things. And Bilbo's perspective is so narrow, so domesticated, that being late for dinner counts in his mind apparently as a minor catastrophe. Now the action of the first chapter focuses on the invasion of this quiet, Bagginsish world by the startling, unpredictable world of adventures. The encounter with Gandalf starts the process, and as soon as Dwalin steps across Bilbo's threshold, the line is crossed. Here we have a very tame, civilized occasion, a tea party, broken in upon by an uninvited dwarf, who steps inside as if he were expected. By the time Fili and Keeley arrive, Bilbo is hardly surprised at all. He goes from badly flustered to positively flummoxed, and finally is forced to the inescapable, undesirable truth, that a most wretched adventure has come right into his house, his beautiful hobbit hole which was described at the beginning of the story as the center of comfort and peace. The effects of this invasion can be seen most clearly in one small but significant interlude in this unexpected party. I'm thinking of Gandalf and Thorin's display of smoke rings. Remember that Bilbo was smoking on the lawn and blowing smoke rings idly when Gandalf first arrives. Tolkien invites us in this first scene to associate smoking with relaxation, comfort, and conviviality. Bilbo does, after all, invite Gandalf to sit down and share his tobacco with him. Thorin and Gandalf's smoke rings are not only magical, they're vaguely threatening. Unlike Bilbo's smoke rings, which just float away over the hill, Gandalf's smoke rings are predatory, hunting down and popping Thorin's. What was initially associated with ease and comfort, now seen hovering around Gandalf's head, makes him look strange and sorcerous. When adventures and magic break in on Bilbo's quiet and predictable life, we see that even the quietest and most mundane parts of it are transformed, touched by magic and made strange and wonderful. Even Bilbo's larder, that other center of quiet hobbitly pleasure, is involved, for Gandalf somehow magically knows everything that's in it. This is the effect that Gandalf has on Bilbo's Bagginsish world. He is both wizard and story-maker, transforming what he touches. The primary focus of the chapter, however, is the division within Bilbo himself. He internalizes the conflict between the mundane and the marvelous. Bilbo starts off almost pure Baggins. He speaks disapprovingly of Gandalf's being responsible for so many quiet lads and lasses going off into the blue for mad adventures. He runs into his house in panic when Gandalf suggests sending him on an adventure, though not before stammering out a polite and very Baggins-like invitation to tea. When he hears Balin, Dwalin, Fili, and Keeley discussing goblins and dragons, Bilbo not only did not understand them, he did not want to, for they sounded much too adventurous. When all fourteen of his guests are seated at his table, he can be found sitting on a stool at the fireside, trying to look as if this was all perfectly ordinary and not in the least an adventure. Bilbo is committed, initially, to resisting the adventure even when it has already invaded his life. The turning point for Bilbo is the song that the dwarves sing. It is their song that finally takes him outside his own experience, his own mundane world that he is still so desperately trying to cling to. As soon as the dwarves start playing music, Even before they begin to sing, Bilbo forgot everything else, and was swept away into dark lands under strange moons, far over the water and very far from his hobbit hole under the hill. Bilbo is transported out of his comfortable world and into the world of the dwarves. He is even brought to share their perspective and experience. While they sing, he felt the love of beautiful things made by hands and by cunning and by magic moving through him, a fierce and jealous love, the desire of the hearts of dwarves. Bilbo, in other words, for a little while enters wholeheartedly into the story of the dwarves, their quest, and their adventure, as into a secondary world. Bilbo is moved by the art both of their music and their poem, both of which things are associated repeatedly with enchantment in Tolkien's world. Just as Gandalf is storyteller and story maker, who has chosen to sweep Bilbo up into the tale he is now devising, so the dwarves first begin to win Bilbo over through literary art, through their music and poetry. Bilbo's adventure is, from the beginning, not just a story that we read, but a story that he himself is listening to and getting drawn into. The success of this poetic sub-creation by the dwarves is even more remarkable since their song demonstrates quite clearly how strange and in some respects even sinister dwarven nature is. I've mentioned how Tolkien depicts the dwarves as a comic troupe, but the hearts of dwarves, as they're illuminated by this song, are not funny at all. I'm going to discuss the Dwarf Song in some detail, so I'd like to just read it once through. You can find it on page fourteen and fifteen, and it might help to have it in front of you as I talk about it. Far over the misty mountains cold, to dungeons deep and caverns old, we must away, ere break of day, to seek the pale enchanted gold. The dwarves of yore made mighty spells while hammers fell like ringing bells in places deep where dark things sleep in hollow halls beneath the fells for ancient king and elvish lord there many a gleaming golden hoard they shaped and wrought and light they caught to hide in gems on hilt of sword On silver necklaces they strung the flowering stars, On crowns they hung the dragon-fire, In twisted wire they meshed the light of sun and moon. Far over the misty mountains cold, To dungeons deep and caverns old, We must away, ere break of day, To claim our long-forgotten gold goblets they carved there for themselves, and harps of gold, where no man delves there lay they long, and many a song was sung unheard by men or elves. The pines were roaring on the height, the winds were moaning in the night, the fire was red, it flaming spread, the trees like torches blazed with light. The bells were ringing in the dale, and men looked up with faces pale. Then dragons' ire, more fierce than fire, laid low their towers and houses frail. The mountains smoked beneath the moon, the dwarves they heard the tramp of doom. They fled their hall to dying fall beneath his feet, beneath the moon. Far over the misty mountains grim, to dungeons deep and caverns dim, we must away, ere break of day, to win our harps and gold from him. Okay, the song is divided into two sections by the repetition of the first stanza, with small variations, chiefly in the last line, which states their purpose. The first time we get it, they say, We must away, ere break of day, to seek the pale enchanted gold. The first section of the song focuses on a praise of Dwarven craftsmanship. The imagery in the first two stanzas, which establish the setting and speak of their halls, are full of imagery of subterranean gloom. Dungeons deep, caverns old, places deep where dark things sleep. In sharp contrast, the treasures that they craft are all associated with light. They catch light, and hide it in gems on hilt of sword. They string stars on necklaces, and hang dragon fire on crowns. They mesh the light of the sun and moon in twisted wire. The dwarves don't need the sun in their deep places. Their gleaming golden hoards are their sun. When the dwarves repeat the first stanza, they are no longer merely seeking enchanted gold. They are claiming their long-forgotten gold though it's obviously not forgotten by them. The focus turns to the dwarves themselves, and their secrecy and possessiveness. There's another stanza praising their handiwork, but the focus has shifted. It now emphasizes that these are wonders made for themselves, that they were kept where no man delves, and that the song sung by the dwarves to the music of their golden harps, like the golden harp that Thorin is singing to at this moment, was sung unheard by men or elves. It's in the context of this privacy, this ownership of their treasure, that they speak of the invasion of the dragon, and of his violation and destruction of their kingdom. The final repetition, in the last stanza, emphasizes the finishing point, the determination to get back what was stolen from them, those secret golden harps that were theirs alone. The new rhyming words in this third repetition, grim and dim, certainly match the attitude of the dwarves themselves, grim and dark. If you go back and review the three repeated stanzas, you can see the overall shape of their thought, their focus in this adventure. It starts with a praise of the glory of the wealth and treasure, passes on to their rights, their ownership of this treasure, and thence to their grim desire not only to recover the treasure, but to take vengeance on the dragon who stole it. The love of the dwarves is fierce and jealous, and it is shrouded in darkness from one end to the next. It's conceived in all of those deep, dark places that the first two stanzas talk about, and it ends with the dark business of vengeance. This phrase, dark business, is used of the dwarves' plans several times in the chapter. This is done most prominently right after the song has ended, when they all find themselves sitting in the dark, after night has fallen and the fire has gone out. When Bilbo makes to fetch a light, all of the dwarves tell him, We like the dark, dark for dark business. This moment clearly illustrates how very different are the minds of dwarves and hobbits. Bilbo, having emerged from his imaginative investment in the dwarves' dark world, is divided in his mind. Tolkien says he had less than half a mind to fetch the lamp, and more than half a mind to pretend to, and go and hide behind the beer barrels in the cellars. The smaller half of his mind is the Tookish part that has just been moved by the dwarf's song. The larger half is the Baggins part that wants to escape these adventurous goings-on. Notice, however, that neither half wants anything to do with all this dark dwarven thinking. He seeks either to escape it or to illuminate it, but he cannot for long truly enter into it. Hobbits, or at least Bilbo, are just not designed for all this darkness and grimness. We're reminded of this by Bilbo's disquiet in his bed that night, when he hears Thorin singing the refrain of the song again and is given very uncomfortable dreams. Although he is not and never really becomes fully like-minded with the dwarves, Bilbo is still stirred by their song. When he hears it and has his moment of secondary belief, of briefly entering into dwarven experience, something Tookish woke up inside him. Now although he is the epitome of predictable Bagginsishness so far, this Tookishness has always been there deep down we're told that he got something queer in his makeup from his Took mother. After his beautiful and quite literally flowery description of Gandalf's fireworks, we are told that Mr. Baggins was not quite so prosy as he liked to believe. This is a really interesting description that makes more sense after the later events of the chapter, and especially the Dwarven song. Bilbo's settled Baggins' life is like prose. Plain and straightforward, and the magical, adventurous world of Gandalf and the dwarves is like poetry, both powerful and moving like the dwarves' song, and also strange and sorcerous like Gandalf's smoke rings. That tendency towards the more marvelous poetic life is lurking beneath the surface already when Bilbo meets Gandalf. This is why Bilbo catches himself saying that life used to be quite interesting when Gandalf was stirring up tales and adventures in the Shire, but he quickly catches himself and stops. But we can't oversimplify things. Bilbo is not just a bold adventurer lurking beneath a mild-mannered exterior looking for a hobbit-sized phone booth in which to transform. I mean, look at what happens when the Tookishness is awakened in him by the song. We're told on page 15, he wished to go and see the great mountains, and hear the pine trees and the waterfalls, and explore the caves, and wear a sword instead of a walking stick. Notice that this first adventurous fantasy of his doesn't include anything dangerous. He thinks of wearing a sword, but not using it. The reference to the walking stick is revealing. We know he loves taking walks. He has his favorite walks marked on a map in his hallway, we're told. His first adventurous moment essentially boils down to a desire to take a really long and splendid walk. He wants to explore caves, but he makes no reference to the goblins who live in the caves. He wants to hear pine trees, but he makes no reference to the dragon wings that make the pine trees roar in the dwarf's song. His first awakening of Tookishness, in other words, is really quite tame, and it's immediately cowed by the mere thought of danger. When he sees the flame from a perfectly mundane fire out the window and thinks of plundering dragons, he shudders and is scared straight. When the thought of that kind of danger threatens to invade his quiet world, he is knocked right out of his first brief adventurous fantasy, and very quickly he was plain Mr. Baggins of Bag End Underhill again. When the idea of mortal danger is again forced on him by Thorin's reference to the fact that they may never return from their quest, Bilbo shrieks helplessly, falls flat on the floor, and calls out, Struck by lightning! Struck by lightning! over and over again. The lightning reference seems to convey how suddenly and violently Mr. Baggins' secure, comfortable world is being shattered here. Bilbo's real turning point, therefore, is when he embraces his Took side with his will, not just his imagination under the influence of the dwarf's song. He comes to want to be thought fierce, to be able to face danger. This was the last obstacle that had to be overcome. Now when he envisions the adventure, it still involves a long walk, but not just a walk. He declares himself willing to walk from here to the east of east and fight the wild wereworms in the last desert. Although we might suspect him of poetical exaggeration here, he is now at least thinking in theory about using that sword for which he will exchange his walking stick. The fact that he clearly still thinks of going without bed and breakfast as a major sacrifice shows that he still does not really understand what the adventure will be like, but he's willing nevertheless. This is the moment in which Tolkien declares that the Took side had won. We know that Bilbo's character will never be truly and completely Tookish. Tolkien tells us right away that many a time afterwards the Baggins part regretted this decision. The struggle between the Took and Baggins sides of him never simply goes away, neither side ever totally wins. In fact, even when he's in the middle of being Tookishly determined to go on with things, there's still a lot of Baggins about him. He asks for an explanation of their quest and the full story behind the dragon and the treasure. Thorin, in some exasperation, points to the song that they sang, claiming to have already given a perfectly good explanation in poetic form. Now, this is perfectly true. The song does tell the story and explain all that you really need to know about their quest, and about the dwarves' own attitudes and outlook, for that matter. Bilbo, as we've seen, was deeply stirred by the song. He's not completely prosy. He is sensitive to the power and the beauty of the dwarves' poetic art. But this isn't enough, even for a Bilbo under the influence of his Tookish side. He still wants everything laid out in prose, plain and clear, to supplement the poetry. He even puts on his best business manner, usually reserved for people who tried to borrow money off him, showing a very mundane and bagginsish attitude in the midst of all this tookishness. Bilbo will, as time goes on, get more and more poetic, until eventually in The Lord of the Rings, poetry is what he's famous for. The guests at his farewell party in The Fellowship of the Ring, themselves very prosy, will all be afraid he's going to break out in poetry at any second during his speech. And at the Great Council, Elrond half expects Bilbo to tell his entire story, this story, of course, in verse. Yet Bilbo will never completely lose his Baggins' nature. He will always remain partly prosy. The question of Bilbo's identity, who and what he really is, occupies a lot of attention at the end of the chapter. Gandalf is especially involved in this process, which is not surprising since Gandalf is the story maker. When Gandalf calls Bilbo as fierce as a dragon in a pinch, it is mere poetical exaggeration. When Gandalf writes on the door that Bilbo is a burglar looking for a good job with plenty of excitement, this is obviously a joke at Bilbo's expense. Remember that Gandalf laughs long but quietly before he writes it. Glowen openly doubts Bilbo's identification as a burglar at all, suspecting that to be just a part of the joke, saying that he looks more like a grocer than a burglar. This is a rather unkind, though not entirely inaccurate way of characterizing Bilbo's bagginsishness but when Gandalf identifies Bilbo as a burglar, he really seems to mean it. Gandalf insists on his choice and on his identification, saying, if I say he is a burglar, a burglar he is or will be when the time comes. In fact, he goes on to call him, in a phrase that will ring through the rest of the book, the chosen and selected burglar. Let me wrap up here. In the first chapter of The Hobbit, Tolkien does a really clever thing. Knowing that he has a difficult artistic challenge before him in trying to bring a young audience into a state of secondary belief through his own art, he models this very process for us within the story itself. As we come from our mundane world and are being asked suddenly to permit the marvelous and magic world of Tolkien's subcreation to break into that comparatively quiet and comfortable reality, in which dragons, for instance, are very far off indeed, we meet a character who's struggling through exactly this same process. Our first introduction to this grim, dark, dangerous world is also his introduction, and his reluctance and difficulty in adjusting to it gives us time to leave behind our own fears and reservations. Bilbo serves as the perfect touchstone for readers. He mediates between the mundane world and the marvelous world, and he himself embodies the tricky frontier between these two worlds in the conflict between his Took and Baggins natures. In my next lecture, The Ridiculous and the Sublime, I will discuss the next two chapters of the book, Roast Mutton and A Short Rest, focusing on the representations of the trolls and the elves. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.